0: Welcome to the Salt Company Cedar Falls Podcast. We're a ministry of Candeo Church, and we are glad you're listening. All right, everybody. Hey, you can go ahead and grab a seat. It's great to be with you tonight. Hey, what's up, D'Artagnan? Good to see you, man. Hey, bucket game, sh- bucket hat game strong. That's a great bucket hat. Wonderful. Love the rainbows on it, the stripes. It's great. All right, hey, it's awesome to be with you. My name is Steven. If we have yet to meet, I'm on salt staff here and it is great to be with you. So uh, Laura actually just said my opening line that Halloween is over and already thinking about gifts. That is a true statement. Guys, I feel like I do pretty good at gift giving for two very simple reasons. When it comes to Natalie, I do two things and it helps me kill it on the gift game every single year. Here it is, one, I start early, so I've already been on Amazon, and two, I get exactly what she tells me to get her. So simple, it really is. Like, I'm not not trying to be creative, I just ask her, what do you want me to get her? And she tells me, and so she already knows what she's getting, but she doesn't actually know because she told me like three things, but I'm gonna get her one of those three things. Super, super simple. But here's the deal, every once in a while, I or you receive a gift that, At first we might be excited about, and then pretty soon it turns out to be more of a burden than a blessing. So when I was in elementary school, there was a family that was friends with our family, and they asked us, they said, hey, we've got this guinea pig named Joe. Would you like Joe the guinea pig? And we looked at this guinea pig, and it's like, so cute, so fluffy, so adorable, so cuddly. And his name was Joe, like perfect. We will totally take Joe. We had a cousin named Joe. We thought he was the coolest guy ever. So we're like a guinea pig named Joe, that's even better. So we get Joe from this family. And the reason they needed to give us this guinea pig is they claimed that their son had a guinea pig allergy. And so we get this guinea pig, we're having a ton of fun, we go to the pet store, we get a cage, we get like the little mulch that you put in the cage, we got that cute little water bottle that it goes up and like gets a drop at a time. We put like wooden blocks in there for it to chew on. Guys, I didn't know this until this afternoon, but guinea pigs did some research on them, genetically wired to need to chew on things all the time. So if you have a guinea pig, put a block in there or something. So we did all of that, it was super cute, super fun, we're snuggling all of that until five hours later. So nighttime comes, we say goodnight to little Joe, we love him, we put him in the cage, we curl up in our beds, we turn off the lights, we close our eyes, And then the loudest scream from the smallest little organism I've ever heard came out of this guinea pig. And for the rest of the night, this thing screamed, it whimpered, it cried, it kept us awake. It was making tons of noise. I've never heard something drink so loud out of a water bottle, you know? It's just like doing all this stuff, just whimpering, crying, and it was awful. Kept us awake all night, which then like made us wonder like, Wait a second, guinea pig allergies really a thing? Don't know if that's actually true. I might have a guinea pig allergy. What's up with this? Terrible, terrible little guinea pig. So we moved it to the basement and it died. <laughs> I honestly, guys, here's my theory. I actually started a note on my phone today of theories by Stephen. Here's one of my theories. I think this guinea pig died of like heartache. Just, we... I know, I know it's terrible. I think that's what happened. It just was so annoying, just so annoying. It would just cry all night in the basement and we lived on, you know, upstairs and we could still hear it. And so finally it died. I did cry that day. I did cry. I'm not sure what emotion I would use to describe my tears. I don't think sadness is the right word. I also don't feel great about calling it joy. So I'm gonna go with confusion. Confusion seems like the right one there. So Joe the guinea pig dies. A gift that was supposed to be a blessing that we were super excited about at first became a burden. And all of us can think of maybe that was one or two gifts in our life that we were really excited about at first, but then all of a sudden became a burden. It's the car that needs a bunch of repairs that you thought was awesome, then it needs to be repaired. It's the iTunes gift card when you have no Apple things. Thanks mom for Christmas 2014. There's these gifts that we get that we think will be a blessing, turns out to be a burden. And what we wanna do the next three weeks is talk about a gift. A gift that God designed and was intended to be one of the greatest blessings in your life. It really is, it's a gift that God wants to have a significant blessing in your life through this gift. And all of us have it, all of us experience it, and it's the gift of family. But here's what we all know about family. So many of us, when we think of family, actually don't necessarily immediately think about blessing. We actually think about burden. And for so many of us, the gift that was intended to be one of the greatest sources of blessing and delight in our life has actually become one of the greatest sources of pain and heartache and burden. And so for the next three weeks, we wanna look at what God's intended design was for our families. We want to recapture God's vision for family. We want to ask, how was it supposed to work? How can God redeem the brokenness and burden that we experience within these relationships? And what would it look like for us to move forward experiencing the blessing God intended from this gift? And so we are going to talk really specifically over the next three weeks about two relationships in particular. There's a lot of relationships inside of a family, but there's two in particular we want to talk about. And they're the two sets of relationship that more than any other relationship in your life will most determine the trajectory of your life. It's your relationship with your parents, and it's the relationship with your future spouse. More than any other relationships in your life, those two sets of relationships determine the trajectory of what your life will look like and what your life will be. And so tonight, we want to talk about marriage. Three weeks from now, we want to talk about parents. Next week, try to follow that circus. Next week, we want to talk about dating. If this is a vision for marriage, how do we assess who we should marry so marriage dating parents those are the next three weeks leading up to thanksgiving and hopefully we just get you set up to have the most incredible thanksgiving ever you can walk in and just be like blessing on blessing on blessing let's go thanksgiving christmas here i am so tonight is marriage that's what i will do like just run in i don't know why i'm picturing myself shirtless grabbing a turkey but that's what i'm picturing I don't know. Random things pop into my head, guys. That's why I have notes in my phone, like theories by Stephen. Okay. Bibles open to Ephesians 5, please. Tonight we're talking about marriage. What is God's vision for marriage? Ephesians 5. Just a quick side note. Every single week we open up the Bible. It is super helpful, I think, to have a physical one with you so you can look and follow along verse by verse what we're working through Uh, But if you only have your phone app tonight, that is totally cool as well. We'll also throw it on the screen. But Ephesians 5 is where we're at tonight. And this is one of the most comprehensive passages in our Bibles about marriage. And in it, the Apostle Paul is going to answer three important questions to help us recapture God's vision for marriage. The first question is what is marriage? The second is how does it work? And then lastly, what is the purpose of marriage? So what is marriage? How does it work? What is the purpose of it? Ephesians 5. So if, there, if you're there, we're going to be starting in Ephesians 5:22. Yes, there's a cake up here next to me. It's in case I get hungry. All right, Ephesians 5:22. Here's how it begins. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hates his own flesh but provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. To sum up each one of you is to love his wife as himself and the wife is to respect her husband. All right, first question, what is marriage? If we're gonna try to figure out how we go about being married, what the purpose of marriage is, we first have to ask the simple question, what is it even? What is God's definition of marriage? And Paul actually explains that by pointing us all the way back to one of the very first verses on marriage in our Bible, that would be Genesis two twenty four. In Genesis 2:24, God creates Adam and Eve, the first two humans that ever live. And God brings them together in Genesis 2 and presents Eve to Adam. And as he's presenting Eve, he says this, verse 31, Paul quotes it. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's the definition of marriage. That is what marriage is. When God gave us the institution of marriage, that is what he declared it to be. That's how he defined it. So let's break it down. What does it mean? For this reason, man will leave his father and mother and be joined as wife. Let's start there. First and foremost, marriage is two separate individuals coming together to be joined together as one, united Two distinct people becoming one. They're no longer two separate individuals. They're actually one body, one unit, one entity. They become one flesh. There's union and unity between the two individuals are now one. And they're brought together as one into this covenant relationship. Now, what is a covenant relationship? Well, to explain covenant, first think of what a contract is. A contract is two distinct parties, trying to negotiate their terms in the interest of their own self, in their own self interest. And then they establish this contract that's based on terms. And if you hold up your end of the contract, then I'll hold up mine. But if you fail to hold up your end of the contract, then that frees me from my end of the contract and I'll be compensated for you failing. And then we can go our separate ways. That's what a contract is. What a covenant is, is it's not based on terms, instead it's based on a promise. It's this covenant relationship that's built on a promise that says, I will be one with you no matter what. It's not predicated on you holding up your end of the deal. Instead, it's predicated on a promise that I'm going to commit myself to you and to this oneness forever. That is what a covenant is. God bringing two distinct parties and forging them together in one, as one body, as one unit, under a covenant promise to one another. Not you hold up your end and I'll hold up mine instead of covenant. So that is in essence what marriage is. Now here's a few cultural implications. We're just gonna pause for a few minutes here. A few culture, cultural implications with that definition of marriage. So here's the definition again, two distinct parties becoming one in a covenant union together. Few cultural uh, implications of that. First, if that is true, if that is a true definition of marriage, then any sexual activity becoming one flesh outside of marriage is outside of the design of God and is therefore sinful. If this is true, if this is the definition of marriage, then becoming one flesh with someone outside of God's design of a covenant marriage is outside of the design of God and his intent for sexual experience. Now guys, sex is an amazing gift from God. It is something that he created. It's something that he designed. It was for our pleasure, for our enjoyment, but he created it to be enjoyed within his wise parameters, within the covenant relationship of marriage. So that's the first cultural implication. The second cultural implication, look back at verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. God's design for marriage is to be, is to be between a man and a woman. And any other expression of marriage is outside of the design of God. That's what we're seeing from this biblical definition of marriage. Now here's the reality, if you experience same-sex attraction in our ministry, my hope and my prayer is that this community and this church and this ministry would be one of the few places that you for the first time have found a brotherhood or sisterhood of compassion, of grace, of healing, of wholeness. One that is marked by love and empathy. That in a world that has made you feel so isolated and alone that you for maybe the first time in your life would be able to share that with someone in this room. And instead of seeing hatred and resistance, you would actually see loving care and a willingness to walk alongside you. And in the midst of that, we are going to love you enough to share with you what God's design for human sexuality and intimacy is. I know that for you, if you experience same-sex attraction, that this is one of the most intimate aspects of your life. And it feels like God is asking you to cut off an arm to embrace this vision of marriage. And yet we want to love you enough to say God's design is good, even when we can't understand it. And we love you enough to walk with you as painful as that process will be. The third cultural implication of this is if, if marriage is the union of two separate entities and they become one, then to sever that through divorce is also against God's design and is sinful. Now here's the reality. We live in a world that is marked by brokenness and your brokenness is not more powerful than God's grace. God's grace is more powerful than any brokenness that you brought into this room and God's design is more good than anything that you might have conceived for your life. To embrace God's design by his grace is for our ultimate good. So this is what marriage is, the union of a man and woman in a covenant relationship for life. Now, how does it work? Well, look back to verse 22. And here's what I want you to ask as we look at these uh, commands given to wives and husbands. Ask yourself, what is underneath these commands? What is at the heart of these commands Paul is giving? So here's what he said to wives. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the, head of the, uh, is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. All right, so that is the command to the wife. Now look at the command of the husband. It says this, husbands love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. All right, we're gonna circle back to the word submission in a minute, but first I wanna ask you, what is at the heart of those two commands? If you really stepped back, what is really the essence of those commands? Well, what's submission? Submission is yielding one's own interest for the sake of the other. What is God's command to the husband? Love your wife the same way that Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? he gave himself up for her by going to a cross. What is at the heart of both of these commands? A selfless sacrificial love for the sake of the other. The only way marriage works is if both the husband and the wife in their unique ways, sacrificially love the other. Now, why does the word submission just raise a ton of alarm bells in our mind? Well, the reason it does is because we have lived in a culture that approaches marriage as two separate entities. It has looked at marriage in that contractual view, two separate entities that are trying to negotiate their position in this contract to come out ahead. And so the word submission implies with that view that one of these entities is in a subservient lesser role. But when we ask, what is God's definition for marriage? And we see that it is the union of two people now that they are one body. What we begin to see is that God created both male and female in his image in equal value, dignity and worth. And in his wisdom, assigned a leadership role to one and a partner role to the other that it's actually in God's wisdom that he designed marriage this way. Not as two separate individuals and one is subservient and one is a dominant leader. No, instead two equal partners. And in his wise design, he's saying it is good for the family to have a point person among equals. That's God's design. And so what are the implications of that? Well, first, any form of male domination, we should absolutely condemn and reject. That is absolutely sinful for men to be domineering over women, for husbands to be domineering over their wives. That is absolutely sinful. We should condemn that. Second, we should condemn any form of passivity or domineering both in the male in his role and also the female in her role. Men, we need to recognize the unique leadership role that God has called us to inside the house And we should not be passive towards that role or domineering towards that role. And to resist God's design for our, his intended command for our role as husbands is actually to walk in disobedience. We need to recognize that there will be a day as husbands that we will stand before God and give an account for the state of our family and our leadership in our family. And you know what the standard will be? it will be Christ's sacrifice for the church. Have you leveraged your leadership inside your family in the same way that Christ leveraged his leadership for the church? That will be the standard. Similarly for the wives, you should neither be passive or domineering in your role as a partner, in your call to a a posture of submission to your husband. And you also, your resistance to that is an act of disobedience, not just an act of preference. And you will be held accountable to whether or not you leveraged your role as a partner for the flourishing of your family. And what will your standard be? What will be Christ's submission to the Father? Christ's beautiful submission to the Father in the garden when he said, not my will, but your will be done, Father. That is the standard by which you will be held against. Third implication of this is that these roles of leadership and submission are contained within the family. This isn't all men are leading over all women or all women are submitting to all men. No, it's to your own husbands. And here's the fourth implication, boyfriend does not equal husband and girlfriend does not equal wife. We'll talk more about this in the dating, but if you are a girlfriend, you don't submit to your boyfriend. If you're a boyfriend, you don't lead your girlfriend in the same way a husband leads his wife. And if you wanna know how somebody will respond to the authority in their life or how they'll respond to the authority that will happen when you get married, look to how they're responding to the authority that's presently in their life. Their parents, their employers, their pastors, all right, so that is how marriage works. At the heart of these two commands is for both the husband and the wife to sacrificially love one another, to consider the interest of the other as more important than their own. And when those two things are happening, that creates a safe environment for both the husband and the wife to yield their own interest for the other, for the sake of the flourishing of their marriage. Now, what's the point of all this? Why, why go through all this? What is the point of marriage? Well. The answer to that is in verse 32. Paul says something very interesting. He says this, this mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. He says, this mystery is profound. And we might think, okay, what mystery? What mystery is the profound mystery? Is it how two humans can become one? Is it how weak as wives and husbands can embrace our role? Is that what the mystery is? No, the greatest mystery of all of this is Christ and his church. How the God of the universe could be united with his church and how marriage gives us a picture of that relationship. That is the great mystery of marriage is how your marriage one day will glorify God by giving yourself, your spouse and the world a picture of the gospel. And you might ask, well, how does this give a picture of the gospel? Well, what is marriage? We've worked through that. It's being united together as one. It works through sacrificial love so that it brings glory to God. What is the gospel? We have been united to Christ. How? Through his sacrificial love on the cross. For what? For the glory of God. Your marriage, the purpose of it all, is to give the world a window into the type of relationship they were created for. A relationship with a God that is not built on terms, but is built on a promise. A relationship that was established through the sacrificial love of Christ, all for the glory of God. Guys, that is what our marriages are supposed to look like. That is the vision that God has for marriage. Now ask yourself this. How many marriages in your life have you seen this played out in? Like, think about that. This sounds like an amazing vision of marriage, united as one, sacrificial love, glorifying God, giving the world and picture of the gospel. How many marriages have you witnessed that you'd say, yeah, that is basically true of that marriage. If you're like me, the list is pretty short more often than not, this incredible gift of marriage breaks down. This incredible gift, this thing that's supposed to be a blessing turns into a burden. 50% of marriages end in divorce. And even the ones that last operate almost more like roommates than these united as one sacrificial love, glorifying God together. Why is it that this vision of marriage breaks down so quickly? Why is it that when you get married, it will be so hard for you to live this out? Why is it for me, who I would say, Natalie and I have a pretty healthy marriage. Are there still so many days where this is not what our marriage looks like? To answer that, I wanna go to a story. Turn all the way back to Genesis 29. It's a story of a marriage that begins to answer where the breakdown happens in our marriages. That was like perfect time, like all the pages were turning, good time for phone to go off. That's great, Doug. <laughs> All right, Genesis 29, a story of a marriage. Here's the context. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob deceived his father and his brother Esau and is now on the run for his life. He told, uh, basically he stole his brother's inheritance. His brother gets super mad and now he's running for, for his life. And he comes to the land that his distant relatives are in. Laban is one of his distant relatives and he is going to settle there or at least stay with them for a while. And as he shows up to where Laban and his other relatives are, he meets, I don't know how distant this cousin is. Guys, not everything in this story is super clean. We're gonna see that pretty quick. He, Maybe a cousin, who knows? Maybe second, third, I don't know. But he meets one of his, uh, meets Rachel, this woman that he finds so beautiful, and he falls in love with Rachel. So he goes to Laban and he says, Laban, what must I do to marry your daughter, Rachel? And Laban says, Work for me for seven years. And so Jacob works for seven years on on his farm. He's working for him. And finally, after seven years, Laban agrees to allow Jacob to marry his daughter, Rachel. But here's the problem. Rachel is not Laban's only daughter. Laban has another daughter named Leah. And Leah is the older daughter. And there's this interesting thing that it says about Leah. It says that she has tender eyes or some translations say soft eyes. Nobody really knows exactly what that means, but regardless, everybody agrees that there's something about Leah that is undesirable. Something about her that puts Laban in this predicament where men are wanting to marry Rachel, not Leah. And in this culture, the older daughter getting passed up by the younger, that's not gonna fly. So Laban hatches this deceptive plan. And here's what happens, verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, Since my time is complete, give me my wife so I can sleep with her. So Laban invited all the men of the place and sponsored a feast. That evening, Laban took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and he slept with her. And Laban gave his slave Zilpah to his daughter Leah as her slave. When morning came, there was Leah." Jacob's shocked. <laughs> this isn't Rachel. Could you imagine the, how disorienting that would be? I thought, I thought I was gonna marry Rachel. Here's Leah. In the morning, there was Leah. Jacob is furious. He goes back to Laban. and He goes, what did you do to me? Like I wanted to marry Rachel. And Laban says, hey, I'll let you marry Rachel too. It had been disgraceful for Leah to not be married when Rachel is, why don't you work for me for another seven years? So Jacob agrees to this and it sets up this horrible situation for Leah. This horrible situation. So Jacob marries Rachel, then he works another seven years and Leah is stuck in the middle of all this. And here's what Leah begins to experience. Verse 30, Jacob slept with Rachel also. And indeed, he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. Could you imagine the heartache that Leah is already feeling? Years, you are the one known with tender eyes. Not a good thing apparently back then. And here's Jacob, your new husband, And after night one, wants to be done. And so he goes and marries your younger sister. So this puts Leah in a desperate position. Look what she begins to do. Verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. But Rachel was unable to conceive. Leah conceived, gave birth to a son and named him Reuben. For she said, the Lord has seen my affliction. Surely my husband will love me now. What is she hoping in? Here's Leah unloved and she knows it. She finally's gotten married and what happens? Her younger sister marries her husband and he loves her more. Okay, I had a son. Maybe now, surely my husband will love me now. But apparently it doesn't work. Verse 33, she conceived again, gave birth to a son and said, the Lord heard that I am unloved and he has given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. Again, verse 34, she conceived again, gave birth to a son and said, at last my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him three sons for him. Therefore, his name was Levi. What a heartbreaking story. Here is Leah knowing that she is unloved, knowing that her husband isn't interested in her. And even the the heartache of that sentence of, maybe now he'll attach himself to me. Because one of my favorite things is wearing the exact same shirt as Natalie. Because there's just a reality that I'm like, I'm blown away that Natalie wants to associate with me in public. <laughs> it's true, it's like, what? But there's such a longing in our hearts for someone to, attach, to want to attach themselves to us. And here's Leah feeling so unloved, so unwanted, so unattached to her husband. And there's just this desperate pursuit to get his love. And the way she's pursuing his love is by having children for him. Well, Rachel can't have babies. So maybe if I have babies, I will finally be wanted. Maybe I will finally be loved. Maybe finally he'll attach himself to me, but time and time again, it doesn't happen. Jacob is disinterested in her. Could you imagine the pain that she is feeling Finally, the thing she's so longed for to be married happens in day two of her marriage. Her husband wants to be done with her. Marries her younger sister who she's always felt inferior to, towards. And there's just this constant awareness of her unloved, her unwanted and unattached state. The vast majority of people have premarital sex, not because it feels good, but it's because the only time you feel wanted is when you're in bed with someone else. The vast majority of people try to keep up their Snapchat streaks because that streak with that guy is the only time you are reminded that, well, maybe he desires me. The vast majority of people who go from girlfriend to girlfriend or boyfriend to boyfriend, it's not because they just are super attractive. They really aren't. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I know, shots fired. Sorry about that. It's because there's this constant, deep insecurity where you, the second you're out of a relationship, feel so alone and so unwanted. And the only time that you feel desirable is when someone else is regularly texting you. When have you felt like this? When have you felt unwanted like Leah? What are the ways that you've desperately clamored to try to be attached to someone? What have you compromised in just to have a sense of approval and love? What's happening in all of this? Well, I brought a cake up here, and I'll explain it now. Guys, uh, one of the most common things that happens at a wedding is that there is a cake, and at some point there's a cake cutting. It is like the one standard tradition at a wedding that Natalie and I didn't do. We had s'mores. (laughs) We also had some pie. So guys, this is a cake and I, this will ruin everything if I drop it. So I'm going to hold it right here. Guys, here is where most of us are. Imagine a cake is sitting in your house after a super long day of work. Like you've been working all day. You are famished. You come home and this cake is sitting on your table and you are starving. And you're like, I I could use some cake right now. And so you go over to this cake and you just like, you don't even grab a fork. It's just, I'm not going to do it. I could do it. Should I do it? And you just dig your hand in and grab it. This is sticky. No. Okay, one more. I just like the center, that's where the least amount of frosting is. Okay, back on. Imagine you just dig in and you're eating and you're eating and you're starving and you're eating. What's gonna happen? You're gonna feel so sick. You're gonna throw up everywhere. Why? Because cake was never intended to satisfy deep hunger. Boom, let's go Casey. You wanna know what enhances your enjoyment of cake? when you've been fully satisfied by brisket first. (laughs) I'm dead serious. The way you enjoy cake more is if you are actually content with something that truly satisfies deep hunger. Guys, marriage is cake. It is so good. It is so delicious. I like just wanna lick all this frosting off my hand. Guys, it is a great great gift. There should be a sense of security and love and affirmation you experience in marriage. Jacob was a horrible husband. He really was. There we go. I felt that that frosting. He was a horrible husband. Cake is great. Marriage is great. But if you look to marriage to satisfy the deepest hungers of your soul, you will get sick. And the reason why 50% of marriages end in divorce is because they have looked at marriage as cake. And sooner or later, the one thing that they thought would fully satisfy the longings of their soul, they realize it just doesn't. And the more they look to marriage, the more babies they have, the more empty they feel. And sooner or later, their expectations will either crush their spouse or will crush them and it will end in divorce. Or they won't be able to handle the shame of public divorce, so they'll just live as roommates for the rest of their life, but have nothing that looks like a biblical vision of marriage. Guys, marriage is cake. But if you want it to satisfy the deepest longings of approval, security, significance in your life, it will make you sick. Cake is a great gift, but it's a terrible meal. Marriage is a great gift, but it is a terrible meal. So what happens? Well, my Bible's over there. This hand's covered in cake. Verse 35, it says this, Leah has a fourth baby and that son she names Judah. And the reason she names him Judah is because Judah means praise. And she says, this time I will praise the Lord. And then it says she had no more children after that. Something significant shifted for her between child number three and child number four. And it's that she found her ultimate contentment in God. She was ultimately satisfied in him. She praised him and it freed her from the ongoing desperate pursuit of love and affirmation she was seeking in Jacob. The only way you will ever have a chance to embrace God's vision for marriage and experience all the blessing that was intended to be is if you are first content in the approval and love of God. Now, how does that happen? That sounds so simple. How do we get that kind of satisfaction in God? Well, unlike Jacob, Jesus is the only spouse who will never fail you. And Jesus is the only spouse who doesn't look at you and tell you have more babies for me to love you more, but instead says, I will lay down my life for you. He's the only spouse who will never fail you and doesn't demand more from you to earn his love. And until you are anchored in the love of the true bridegroom of heaven, you will never be able to fully enjoy the wonderful goodness of the cake of marriage that God intended it to be. Instead, it will leave you sick. Marriage is a great gift, but a terrible meal. A couple weeks ago, uh, Natalie and I met a woman who had just started coming to Candeo and she was in her 60s. And as we got to know her, she began to tell us her story of how her husband was an alcoholic, of how he abused her regularly, of how he abused her daughter. And about 10 years ago, she was put in a position where she had to choose her daughter or her husband. And so she chose her daughter and her husband left and his alcoholism took him to a point where he is now, has dementia from how much brain damage he has done. But her relationship with her daughter is also strained. And so she looked at us and said, I thought I did the right thing, but in the end I lost both. And she said, I am just so lonely. A 60 year old woman who had been in a marriage that ended horribly. And now is just longing to know that someone loves her. And as we got to talk to her eventually Natalie and I had the chance to open up Revelations 21, nine with her. And we said, there's a day coming when your true spouse will stand at an end of an aisle and he will see his heavenly bride coming towards her. And you will see the look that you have so longed for in a man's eyes, in the eyes of Jesus. You are eternally loved by your great groom, Jesus. A groom who will never fail you and a groom who doesn't require you to do more to earn his love. That is the spouse you were created for. That is the covenant relationship our human marriages are to point the world to. To give people a glimpse of the great covenant relationship that was bought through the sacrifice of Jesus for the glory of God that united us with our true groom. And when that is our ultimate vision of marriage, we'll be able to enjoy the blessing of marriage. Let's pray. God, we love you. God, there is such a desire in all of our hearts to know that we are loved and accepted. Every single one of us wants to know that there is someone who knows us completely and yet accepts us fully. And God, we're so grateful for the reality that Jesus Christ knows us to our core and still loved us to the extent that he would go to the cross for us. God, that we don't have to desperately pursue the love of a spouse like Leah because we know in Christ our deepest longings for love, acceptance, and approval have been fulfilled. God, I pray that as we embrace that vision of our relationship with you, it will free us to enjoy the goodness of marriage like you intended it. God, there's a room full of single people in front of me. And God, the the most important day to prepare for battle is not the day of battle, but long before you ever are on the battlefield. And so, Lord, I pray that these students would begin to cultivate within themselves a nearness to you, an intimacy with you, a confidence in your grace and love that will prepare them for the day that they enter into a covenant relationship with another person, one of the most significant relationships here on earth. And God, I also pray that the nearness that they cultivate with you, the intimacy they have with you will free them from the lie that the world tells us that we have to have a spouse to, have, to be defined. God, there will be people in this room who are single their whole life. And I pray that they would find a great satisfaction and contentment in you. And God, there are people in this room who will be married very soon. I'm thinking of Brandon and Alexis. God, I pray that you would bless their marriage. God, that you would use them to give the world an image, a picture of the gospel, God, I do just want to pray for Brandon and Alexis right now. We so love them. We're so grateful for their leadership in our ministry, and we're so excited for them to get married. But we know that their marriage will only work if they first are anchored in your love. And God, I pray that they would pave a way for every other student in this room to pursue marriage, the gift of marriage in the way that you intended it, as a great gift, but not something that ultimately satisfies us. But from a posture of being ultimately satisfied in Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Salt Company Cedar Falls podcast. For more information about Salt Company, you can visit saltcedarfalls.com.